0: Hear now the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've asked all spring when we approach these Psalms, where in this Psalm is David? Well, you see David all over this Psalm because David was called and anointed to the throne of Israel. When but a boy, long before, in fact, over three decades before he actually took the throne of Judah and consolidated the throne of Israel into one great kingdom, the Lord had him anointed by Samuel. He knew he had been called to that position. And that gave him a security in that position, in that even though the people would oppose him and there would be enemies all over the place, inside Israel and outside Israel, David conquered all of those enemies because he knew the Lord had anointed him and placed him upon that throne. He did not get there by raw ambition. He did not get there by a coup, or by any kind of takeover. He didn't get there as Saul had by popular vote. He got there by the call of God, and God sustained him there. God had called Nathan to come to him to tell him that he had established his throne, not just for David's lifetime, but he would give him a dynasty, that he would raise up a son after him, that that son too would be adopted and would be placed on the throne. And of course, we know King Solomon fulfill that great office. But then the Lord said that throne would be an eternal throne. It would be an eternal dynasty. It would never ever lack a king. And of course for all of Israel's days as a kingdom, even though they had all kinds of difficulty, there always was a descendant of David upon the throne of Judah. But that was just a shadowy, meek, really kind of a temporal and prophetic fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy because in reality All of this looked way beyond King David to David's son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the son of David, who would fulfill all of this. So we ask the question, where is Christ in this psalm? Well, he is everywhere. This is one of the great messianic psalms that talks about the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. And I'm going to expound it briefly and and note a few things for you to help you in interpreting this psalm as you read it and and understand it. Uh, And it'll all be in the light of Christ. I think in the back of your mind you'll see, I see how this applied to King David too as well during his lifetime. But only in a temporal way and only in a small and shadowy way. For the gravity of this psalm is found in Christ. And I want to hurry to show you where Christ is in this psalm. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The raging here is the roaring of the sea. The sea are a symbol of the wicked. The wicked do not rest. The sea does not rest. It's constantly wave after wave, 24 hours a day, coming in. It is stirred up, it is quieted, but it continues to go. This is the position and the posture and the attitude of the enemies of Christ. In fact, that's who it says, they have set themselves and counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The cords and the bonds spoken of here are the strictures of the law of God, the great commandments of God and the edicts of God The wicked have said, let's get out from under all of this burden. Let's throw this yoke off. Let's break these bonds. Let's have ah, liberty and freedom to do what we want to do. And in order to do that, the wicked have always posited themselves against God and against Christ. He who sits on the Sits in the heavens, laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Uh, This, most of the time, growing up, as I would read this particular psalm, I always thought this was a little bit uh, of a of kind of a a poor or negative way to think about the Lord you know, we, we think it is unkind and uncouth to laugh at the misfortune of others and to laugh at calamity and to laugh at things that befall people that are wicked. But this has, this has with it more of the confidence of the supreme creator and ruler, God himself, as he looks upon the, the ranting and the raving and the violence of people who curse his name, who do not walk in his statutes, who constantly try to think of ways and devices to disobey his commandments and to violate everything he stands for. This is the sinner that is bound in sin and is constantly trying to do things his way instead of God's way, constantly taking counsel against God and against his anointed. This, of course, is spelled out several places in the Psalms. One of the most interesting places is Psalm 83. Listen to it. O Lord, do not keep silent. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God, for behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people they consult together against your treasured ones they say come let us wipe them out as a nation let the name of israel be remembered no more for they conspire with one accord against you they make a covenant there's a straight line between this particular passage in the old testament and what happened in the new testament it was in the it was in the life of christ that counsel was taken The the Gospel of Matthew says they took counsel to put him to death. Herod and Pilate became friends that day. Remember that? The day that they had a common purpose, and their purpose was to condemn Jesus Christ to death. They took counsel against Christ. It's interesting to know that this particular passage, this Psalm 2, is quoted five times in the New Testament, but one of the most interesting quotations that you'll find of it anywhere is in the book of Acts, where the psalm is not merely quoted, but it becomes the prayer of the congregation of God's people. And here is the story. Do you remember the day in the early church when Peter and John went up to the temple to pray at the the hour of prayer about three o'clock in the afternoon, and they met a lame man at the gate. Remember that in, in Acts 3? Remember what happened is they healed the lame man, and the lame man gave testimony to the healing power of God and was leaping and speaking, and he caused such a, a scene that Peter and John were apprehended and were brought before the council. And it's interesting that the council they were brought before The rulers and elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Do you recognize that assize, that array of judges? That's the same people that condemned Jesus. These are the same men, the same family, the same group. Peter and John now were standing before the same judges in Israel, the Sanhedrin, that had condemned Christ to death just maybe months earlier. What do you think their fate was? What do you think they knew what happened to them? What do you think the verdict would be? Well, as it turned out, the verdict was that they were severely warned and told not to speak. anymore in the name of Christ, and they were sent away with that warning. In other words, the counsel of these people had come to vanity. It did not work. There was no execution. Instead, Peter and John make it back to the fellowship, and there in Acts chapter 4 verse 23 we have this story, and when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against him his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, do whatever the, your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. And it says, and when they had finished their praying, the place was shaken. The sovereign Lord of the universe was laughing on his throne because now was a glimpse of the vindication of God's people that was yet to come. Those that hated God, those that hated Christ, those that were trying to, to uh, destroy and to disobey and to do everything they could to work against the plans and counsels and the sovereignty of the Lord had come to n- naught. And the Lord knew that his purposes would be fulfilled. And they were fulfilled at this hour, in this particular circumstance. This was something that really buttressed the courage of the believers in the early church because they knew that what was happening in the early church was what God had ordained to happen. And that's exactly what the text had said. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill." Zion in the Old Testament is a picture of the church. Zion's hill. The word Zion means distant. It means a distant view. It means far off. That's what the word Zion means. The holy hill of God in Jerusalem where the temple sat was sometimes called Zion's hill or the holy hill. It was the place of God's dwelling. It was the place of God's temple. And God knew that in the distant future, far out there, he was going to be building a new house. The fallen tabernacle of David, the fallen tent of David would be re-erected and established. And in that place, there would be a new people. And there in the very Portico of Solomon, ironically, the son of David, in the porch of Solomon, he had fulfilled that promise. His king had been established on the throne, and his sovereignty and his rule over all the earth, and his protection of his people, and the vindication of them, and the vindication of his Messiah was being fulfilled. The next two verses talk about preaching and praying. It says, I will tell of the decree. Well, actually that word means to declare or to proclaim. It's indicative. It is, it's not just I will tell it, but I will preach it. I will proclaim it and pronounce it. I will tell of the decree. That's the gospel. The decrees of God are God's sovereign will to save his people. And so that literally says, I will preach the gospel. And here's the gospel. The Lord said to me, and David knew that the Lord had said to him, but now this is Christ himself preaching the gospel initially, and then, of course, his disciples continuing that work. But here's what they say. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The blessing of the Lord was upon Christ at his baptism when the Bible tells us that there was a voice from heaven saying, my son, my beloved son speaking of the only begotten Son. And the apostles over and over, John and all the others tell us that if you receive the Son, you've received the Father. If you see the Son, you've seen the Father. If you accept the Son, you've accepted the Father. My Son, in whom I am well pleased, today I have begotten you. This is the language of adoption, and it is the language of enthronement, placing upon the throne and giving the authority. That's the preaching. Here's the prayer. Verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Oh, there's so much to say about that. Even Jesus... In order to get something from the Father, which was coming to him by divine decree, had to ask for it. You have not because you ask not. Ask and you shall receive. The Father says to the Son, ask me. And the Father asks him. How many times do we see over and over in the life of Christ, Christ asking something for his disciples, asking something for. He says, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The word nations here is the word goim, which translates the word ethnein, which is the, 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 the nations or the people groups. Sometimes it's translated Gentiles, and we sort of get that ethnically confused, but it means all the people on the face of the earth, all the families on the face of the earth. It's that same word that's used when Jesus gives the great commission when he says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's kingly language. I have sent my king in Zion. All authority go and make disciples of all the nations. The nations, that was the temptation. Remember, Satan was going to give Jesus all the nations of the earth if he would just bow down and worship him. The Lord resisted that shortcut in that way of receiving the nations. He was not just to possess the nations. He was to die for the nations. It was that the one would die in place of the people die instead of the people and this is what Jesus Christ did. He came to possess the nations through redemption He came to receive them not by just a gratuitous bestowal from the Father although that is certainly involved but He came to redeem them, to make them His possession legally righteously. A penalty had to be paid because the nations had been raging. The peoples had been at enmity against Christ. There had to be a forgiveness of sins. There had to be an appeasement. There had to be a propitiation. There had to be a reconciliation between God and man. And Jesus came and accomplished all that. That's how he possessed the nations, Notice the interesting language here. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The image of the rod in the the Bible is a pretty interesting image. There's the rod of gold. The rod is the scepter. It was the long staff that, that symbolized the authority of the ruling sovereign. Abraham carried a big old staff. Moses carried a big old staff, big rod. And this is what had been promised to David. All the way back in the days of Jacob, Jacob said to Judah, the father of David, the ancestor of David, he said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah, David, will always have the rod, the rod of iron, the rod of gold symbolized prosperity. If it was made of solid gold, the rod of of wood, that is that branch or that shoot that comes out of a stump that comes off of a, the uh, trunk of a tree, uh, that is the rod of discipline. David said, Thy rod and thy staff they comfort me. It is the rod of guidance and of discipline. But the rod of iron was a weapon. The rod of iron was not just a symbol of authority, it was a symbol of power and here the the imagery is quite vivid you will break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel the heavy rod of iron striking the piece of pottery doesn't just crack it doesn't just break it it shatters it you want to see what that sounds like revelation chapter 19 all these images and visions, this incredible audio-visual display that the Lord is putting before the eyes of John the Revelator. And here's one of them. And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war." His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. In other words, he is the king of many nations, many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is undoubtedly a picture of Christ and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wine of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the picture of God coming, as what the Apostle Paul says, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God nor obey his gospel. In other words, this is God executing his vengeance. This is what is spoken of in verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and will terrify them in his fury. Oh, oh, that's a little different message than we generally hear. God angry, God with wrath, God ready to smash a person like you would smash a piece of pottery, shattering. He's the potter. He made the pot. He can destroy the pot. God made you. He can destroy you if you insist and persist in being His enemy, being against Him, and opposed, seeking to throw off His law, to break His bonds, to not recognize His Christ. Interesting, the, ver- the adverb that's used here, verse 5, then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. Then... There's a day coming. Then that will happen. But notice the adverb used in our closing stanza. Now. The wrath to come is then. But here's what's to take place now. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now is the day of salvation, now is the accepted time, now is the time to repent, now is the time to get right with God, then it'll be too late when he comes in his fury to pour out upon every unbelieving soul that which they justly deserve by way of penalty for their sins. Today is the day to be wise, to be smart. And it says, listen to this warning. Serve the Lord with fear. Be wise, O kings. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't have a little terror in your heart, for what our God, who is a consuming fire, can do to the wicked, can do to a sinner, even you, especially you, if you're not in some fear of that, you don't understand the gospel at all. And if you're saved, you don't even know what you're saved from. Years ago, about 15 years ago, I was teaching the agape class, and we were kind of winding it up, and one of the men of the class in the back had a question. He said, Ron, you're always talking about us being saved. He said, what are we saved from? I said, God saves us from God. That's who we're saved from. God saves us in His mercy and grace from His wrath both of which are righteous and just. That's why Christ had to die. It wasn't enough for God just to let it pass and to wink at sin and to let it go by. A penalty had to be paid. A rod of iron had to smash something. God had to strike a blow at something in fierce retaliation and punishment for the dreadfulness of sin. And God did it to Christ on the cross for us. God saved us from his wrath by venting that wrath in Christ. And so it says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. If that doesn't, understand, if that doesn't state what a person that really understands the gospel does, you're, you're thrilled to the bottom of your heart with the joy of salvation. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, we read today. But deep down, there's also this fear, this fear that knows if you're displeasing to God, if you've aligned yourself against God and his anointed and against Christ, if you've got ought against him, if you've got a grudge, if you've got some kind of animosity, God's not fair, God's not good, God's really not gracious, God may not exist. Whatever it may be that is anti-Christ, that is against Christ, There needs to be some fear in your soul because here's the proper response and it's our last verse. I heard this given as an invitation one time about 25 years ago. I was listening to a Reformed Baptist preacher who's, that's my favorite kind of preacher, by the way, a Reformed Baptist. (laughs) It's almost something that's really a a contradiction in terms, but uh, the old Reformed Baptist preacher Dr. Reisinger, some of you may know who he is, used this as the invitation. He invited the congregation at the conclusion of his sermon to kiss the sun. (laughs) I'd heard invitations all my life. I'd sung 4,000 times just as I am without one plea. I mean, I knew what an invitation, but this was the invitation that night at the little tiny Baptist church out in Mesquite. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. You don't want him to stay mad. You don't want his anger and rage against you because it is a just anger. It is a righteous indignation. You deserve his anger. Here's what you do. You kiss the son. The kiss in the ancient world was the embrace. It was given in many relationships, but the most significant one was when one yielded to the embrace of a superior. That is, when a father would reach out and bring to himself a son, much like the father in the prodigal son story. The embrace. It's when the subject would bow, prostrate before the sovereign and the king. The embrace. Come with fear. Become because you have been called And come because you know there's mercy with the Lord. And when you do, there is a beatitude. There's a blessing. In fact, I think it's the greatest blessing there is. And it's the last last sentence there of our text. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Are you running from the wrath of God? Here's where you run. You run to the arms of God.